What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Robert Black is an author who has written a six-book series about seven influential mathematicians, their lives, and their work. To talk about his latest books and the series itself, we have Robert Black on today. All this and more on this episode of Breaking Math, episode 72, The Lifestyles of the Mathematical and Famous, an interview with Robert Black. I'm Sophia, and this is Breaking Math. With me, I have on Robert Black. Uh, welcome. Oh, thank you. I'm very glad to be here. All right. So um, I guess I'm going to start by asking uh, why you wrote this series. Um, like, uh, who's your who's your audience? Uh, what do you hope for people to get out of this series? Well, um, I write, uh, my publisher is uh, Royal Fireworks Press, which is a, uh, a small press in uh, New York about an hour and a half outside the city. We market a lot to uh, gifted children programs, homeschool programs, that sort of thing. And I've been working for the past 10 years, actually, or more, on um, using storytelling to uh, communicate math concepts. I kind of have both in my background. Uh, I've been writing for 35-ish years, and uh, I'm an engineer, and my my parents are math teachers and, and still keeping up with it even now that they're they're retired and in their 80s my my dad does FaceTime tutoring sessions with one of my nieces and my mom just took a new tutoring gig to help somebody with geometry so uh, it goes with me um, I started looking for ways to use storytelling to to teach math because math does not have the best reputation in education circles and and especially in this country if you watch tv you know math is always something that kind of the nerd character does off to the side so i got the idea that you know we can use storytelling to show that math is something that real people do uh, for real reasons to solve real problems. And so, of course, my first attempt to do this was a, a fantasy series about uh, a girl who sees monsters and ghosts and werewolves. And, and it turns out that they're all bad at math, that people are afraid of monsters, but monsters are afraid of math. And this girl, my main character, can do math. And so they all come to her for help with their math problems. Yeah, that's uh, that's really uh, that's really interesting. Interesting and like kind of like, I mean, just the whole storytelling 
struggling aspect. I mean, I've often mm-hmm. said on this podcast that, you know, if sometimes you've had, if you're struggling to read a concept, I mean, to understand a concept, read the motivation for it, because there's often right. a story there, you know, a struggle. Right. And, um, and I think it's great that um, your work focuses on that. And it strikes me too, that um, your uh, mission is very similar to Breaking Math's mission, which is to take mathematics, which is taught um, as um, a famous uh, paper, can't remember, said, like, if you had paint by numbers, um, instead of uh, finger painting in uh, kindergarten, people might grow up to hate painting and art. Um, <laughs> so it's just uh, one of those uh, things that is really cool to people who often weren't, um, you know, traumatized with math. And, you know, it, it's seen often as a traumatic experience, even for teachers who have to teach math to their like elementary school students and absolutely, things like that. Absolutely. And something that, that, came to me just in the past couple of weeks, you know, they've had this this kerfuffle in Florida over banning math textbooks. And, and once they started to release some of the the math textbooks that were supposed to be objectionable, you know, what, what a lot of them had is this thing called social emotional learning. And I didn't know what that was. And, and I still don't know what that is up beyond, you know, 30 seconds of reading Wikipedia, which, which contrary to some ideas, some people thinking is, it does not make you an expert, but just <laughs> the fact that they see a need to include uh, teaching empathy and feelings with math gives you the idea that, that most people have the assumption that math isn't a feeling thing, that math isn't a, a, a human thing. And so when I when I started looking into that over the past couple of weeks, it's just like, well, this is what I've been trying to communicate for, you know, 10 years is, is that that yes, math is a feeling thing. And math is a thing that that human beings do. And so now to We've gone way off track from your original question, but now I'm going to circle back to it. Um, you know, the the idea of the of the biographies is that here are some real people in history who made some major breakthroughs in mathematics uh, for all sorts of human reasons, for all sorts of you know reasons that people can relate to. I mean. Uh, you know, the, the very first book, Blaise Pascal, pretty much came up with probability theory because somebody asked him for gambling advice. So, you know, <laughs> One of my favorite things about, yes, his, about yes, history. Yes, absolutely. So that's the point of the, the books. And um, my publisher actually suggested doing the biographies, um, but then they left, uh, they left it up to me to choose who my subjects are. So it was, it was a, a very good collaboration, and, and I think we've come out with a, a, really, good, uh, a really good result. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, just looking. I mean, at the uh, birth birth dates and death dates of the mathematicians involved. We'll kind of go over um, each book uh, quickly mm-hmm. and uh, the, the mathematicians uh, within. But um, the, it spans about uh, f- uh, four centuries. Um, just these uh, th- these mathematicians. So, I mean, four centuries in mathematical terms. Um, you know, you cover the, this in quite a bit of uh, detail because I mean, that's really only about five lifetimes. So you've written six. I mean, six books so far, correct? Right. And uh, are you planning to write more? Yeah. Interesting, you you mentioned four centuries because it, four centuries is is pretty much about as far back as you can go and get a lot of good, reliable detail about individual people's lives. I mean, um, my publisher wanted something on Euclid, and, and if this people don't know what Euclid did in his daily life back in back in Alexandria. So, but uh, the biography series is complete, and I am moving on to a new project. But the new project does uh, involve 
history and mathematics and uh, individuals in history. And it goes back uh, even farther than four centuries, in fact, considerably farther than four centuries. And uh, that's all I'm prepared to say about it at the moment. Awesome. Awesome. So without uh, further ado, um, let's uh, jump in. All right, so your first book, Pascal and Fermat, uh, The Probability Pen Pals, uh, was written about uh, three years ago, 2019. Um, so tell us about uh, Blaise Pascal and Pierre de Fermat. Pascal was a mathematician, son of a mathematician. Blaise Pascal was the son of a, a French natural philosopher, is what they called it. Pascal's father, uh, Etienne, was part of uh, Marine Mersenne's salon in, in uh, Paris. Mersenne uh, corresponded with again natural philosophers, mathematicians, scientists all over Europe. And you're saying, and uh, just to clarify, you're saying uh, natural philosopher was the umbrella term for mathematicians yes. and uh, scientists. Yes, they, yes. Um, they were not the first person to be called a scientist. Actually, shows up in in one of my books. Uh, her name was Mary Somerville, and. Uh, that was in Victorian England. But before Mary Somerville, they were called natural philosophers. Yes. One thing about uh, about Blaise Pascal is, is he uh, was kind of a child prodigy. He, he was interested in everything and dove into to everything passionately when he when he discovered it. And his father actually forbade him to study Euclid at first because he knew that once Blaise Pascal got a hold of Euclid, you know, there would be no stopping him. And and, and so Blaise actually studied Euclid in secret. <laughs> Uh, because, you know, of course, once your father tells you not to do something, that's that's exactly what you want to do. So I'm just imagining him under the covers with the candle. Um, yeah, with well, the book. we would hope not a candle, but, but you know, he took. Oh, yeah, um, right. <laughs> Yeah, so he took um, you know sticks from the the fire and and used the the you know the charcoal on the end of them to draw geometric figures and things. Pascal later, when his father got involved in in some tax collecting work and the workload was so uh, difficult, you know, all this was done by hand, and so uh, Blaise invented a mechanical calculating machine, one of the very first, and it was this uh, thing with cranks and and gears and stuff and and you had to know some complicated mathematics to, to interpret what the machine was telling you but, but yeah he invented this uh, mechanical calculating machine so by the time he was in his 30s he had this uh, friend who was a writer his friend uh, went by the pen name the Chevalier du Maire and, and what, uh, uh, what is that? Um, what does that um, mean in uh, French? Uh, do you know? Uh, che, is, is it is Chevalier, that like the is, of the Chevalier is like a knight, and oh, okay. and Mare, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong, is uh, where he was from. But he was a he was kind of an expert on all things fashionable in in France. And one of the fashionable things was gambling. And so he asked Pascal this question. Uh, called the problem of the points, uh, which is suppose you have two men playing a gambling game where they have to accumulate a certain number of points to, to win the prize money, and the game has to stop before either side has, has gotten to the required number of points. What is the fair way to distribute the, the money? Um, this, had, this question had been around for a couple of centuries. Nobody had solved it. And uh, Pascal dove into it. And uh, he didn't quite know how to do it, 
because we were talking about predicting the future and that was something that you know you're not supposed to be able to do uh and so he ended up marine mersenne put him in touch with uh another frenchman named pierre de fermat fermat is kind of the the greatest of all time the goat of amateur mathematicians. He was not a natural philosopher. He was a, a lawyer. He was a government official in his in his local government, and he did math as his hobby. And he wrote letters to people all over Europe with all his mathematical ideas, and he'd pose problems. And, and Fermat's most famous problem called Fermat's Last Theorem was was not proved until 1994. So, so he knew what he was doing, and he knew how to challenge people with some pretty advanced stuff. And so Pascal and Fermat never met in real life, never met in person, but they wrote letters to each other over several months, and together they came up with what we know as, as probability theory today. So let me ask uh, really quickly, because um, you see this a lot in uh, this time period where uh, mathematicians, uh, scientists, whatever will be, sending letters to one another. Um, mm -hmm. Do you happen to know um, how they got hold of each other's addresses and things like that? Uh, like, um, how do they know about, you know, I mean, you said they got put in touch with one another. Was it really uh, just that simple, uh, giving were, each other um, there addresses? Were, yeah, there were various people who, you know, people who knew people, and one of them was was uh, this this man I've mentioned a couple times, uh, Marine Mersenne. He was. And is this uh, the uh, Mersenne of the Mersenne Primes? That's the guy, the very same, and uh, he he ran a a salon in Paris that uh, eventually became. Uh, Something that his name escapes me right now. The 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 Academy of Paris, you know, a a, a very respected um, school came out of of Mersenne's salons, and it was just people who knew people, and and the postal system, you know, was pretty rudimentary at the time. But uh, you had these people like Mersenne who who were kind of the focal point, and they sent uh, letters to to other people all over all over Europe. Interesting. Um, and you've mentioned the salons, uh, which were uh, essentially, um, from what my understanding, uh, social clubs uh, with uh, admission fees. Right. And and they they got together and they talked about the latest uh, uh, scientific or mathematical studies they'd been working on. When I just wanted to uh, bring that uh, up um, also, I mean, to because uh, the term's been mentioned a few times, but also um, because um, one thing that we've talked about on the show before, kind of a difficult aspect of mathematics um, up to probably like um, the 1800s and even today um, in many respects, um, is something that is done by people who a lot of times are economically privileged. Mm -hmm. um, so I just uh, wonder if, um, if you uh, would like to speak anything to, uh, to that in your research. It's... It is something that yeah, I have noticed. Um, Pascal was privileged. Uh, Fermat was, like I said, Fermat was a lawyer. Uh, there are two women in the series, Florence Nightingale and Ada Lovelace, and they were both definitely privileged. But then again, on the other hand, uh, some of my subjects uh, were not. Benoit Mandelbrot was uh, basically, well, he was, he was from a Jewish family, a Polish Jewish family. 
uh, and and spent World War II uh, on the run from Nazis as a teenager in in Vichy, France, had a completely you know disorganized, irregular education all the way up until he got into uh, the Grande Coles. The the you know the the French system is different. You know you have high school, but then you have university, and in between there's the the Grande Cole, the 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 big schools. And uh, he got into not one, but the two most prestigious. And he, he chose uh, the Polytechnic Institute. But before then, you know, he he was a refugee. He was poor. His family had no money. Uh, his education was, was sporadic. And a lot of times he, uh, you know, he basically got an uh, there was for a time he had a set of old encyclopedias that uh, his his father had managed to scrounge up scrounge up because someone had thrown them out so you know mandelbrot started out very very disadvantaged another example uh david blackwell was the son of a railroad worker david blackwell's father never made it past the fourth grade uh and blackwell also was african-american at a time when this was in the the 20s 30s and 40s when opportunities for some of the worst time (laughs) yeah not very good times. He was fortunate enough to have a geometry teacher in high school who who saw his potential and, and started encouraging him in, in that direction. Uh, but even then, in the 1940s, he was fortunate enough to uh, have a, a professor, uh, his uh, PhD advisor, was asked to join the uh, Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. And uh, this professor was allowed to bring you know, three of his recent PhDs along with him. And so Blackwell got to go to Princeton. Princeton didn't want him uh, because uh, visiting visiting scholars at the Institute for Advanced Study are named as honorary members of the Princeton faculty. And Princeton did not want a black man on their faculty. And, and the people at the uh, Institute for Advanced Study actually got together and threatened to disassociate themselves with Princeton if Blackwell was not given the same honors that the, the rest of the visiting scholars were given. Um, after that, he was interviewed for a job at the University of California, which is where he ended up, but not for another 10 years. His, uh, the guy that would have been his boss and eventually became his boss wanted to hire him. Uh, the upper managed, you know, his, his boss's boss, you know, the deans and everything, they were ready to hire him. The head of the department's wife objected because as the department head, they have all the new professors over for dinner and her objection- It was racist times. <laughs> yes. I, uh, can I say, I, I'm not going to use the N word, but I'm going to use the D word and you can bleep me. <laughs> uh, her, her, oh, yeah, exact, her, her quote is rep- reported to have been, uh, I'm not going to have any darkies in my house. And so because- Yeah, which is definitely a rough quote. <laughs> yes. And, and so because the dean's wife objected to having a black man in her house, uh, he did not get the job at, at UC. He ended up at UC 10 years later, but it was, that was after 10 years. And you know, he, he was always very matter-of-fact about the racism that he had to contend with. I mean, he he had always assumed that he wasn't going to be hired by by UC Berkeley, and so he was busy applying to the historically black colleges, which he did get hired by one. 
there's a, there's another story about Blackwell is is uh, the first time he was in New Orleans and got on a bus there and saw the little signs that say you know coloreds stay here and whites only up here and and he thought that was so fascinating that when he got off the bus he took one of the signs with him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So I don't know where it ended up, but, but uh, you know, he Definitely just kind of, history. He, he just, he just kind of kept on doing his math. And in the sixties, he was at UC Berkeley and, and he was the first uh, black professor there to, to receive full tenure. And the black students there made him their, their faculty advisor for the black student union until they realized that he was more interested in doing math than in participating in the, the social activism of the 60s. And so they got rid of him and went with somebody else. You know, that was just his attitude is, is, hey, I've got this math to work on. So that's my thing. Very Archimedes vibe of don't touch my circles. Right. So, um, so yeah, we've talked about Pascal. Um, we talked about Blackwell and, uh, we talked a little bit about, uh, Mandelbrot, but what we haven't done, uh, yet, um, is, uh, we haven't, uh, well, first we're going to talk about Florence Nightingale, Ada Lovelace, and then Edward Laurence. So tell us about Florence Nightingale. Who was she? Um, what, what was her deal? Florence Nightingale is known as basically the inventor of the modern nursing profession. Before Florence Nightingale, nurses were were basically considered not much better than you know maids, house servants. Uh, Charles Dickens wrote a wrote a book in which he had a, a nurse in there who was an alcoholic, and and a lot of them were alcoholics actually because they were they were put on duty you know to watch the patients overnight in this grungy, dirty hospital, and uh, a lot of them took to drinking just to get through it. Uh, Florence Nightingale. Okay, I, will, I, I will say that I, um, I I have heard that uh, that substance abuse continues to be a major problem for healthcare providers, but I mm. think uh, different stressors now. Different stressors now. Florence Nightingale developed a passion, uh, wanted to be a nurse um, very early on. Her family objected to it because it wasn't proper for a, a, a woman of her social standing to take on this low menial job, but. Uh, she had learned uh, through reading and then got to experience some of the uh, professional nurses in Europe. And that was really the first place she saw that it could be a, a serious profession that required uh, education, training, experience, that sort of thing. She was also very passionate about mathematics, something else that her family thought was was inappropriate for a woman of her social standing to be interested in. She had to study it, and not in secret, but she uh, she studied it together with her aunt. They got up at like five in the morning before the even before the servants were up, and, and studied math together for an hour in the morning. What she's remembered for is uh, during the Crimean War, healthcare was. For the wounded and sick soldiers was terrible. The British army was actually losing more soldiers to disease than to uh, to battlefield injuries. This was not new. This had happened in all the wars previous. But what was different about Crimea is that Crimea had journalists who had telegraphs, and so not exactly CNN, but but still, this was this was a revolution in that the British people could read in the newspapers every day that. Hey, all our soldiers are dying from from disease, from cholera, and uh, so there was this huge outcry to clean up the hospitals. And Florence Nightingale, because of who she knew, 
was appointed uh, the head of a corps of nurses to go over to Crimea. Uh, actually, she didn't go to, she went to Crimea eventually, but um, the hospital was in uh, Skutari, which is in Turkey. Today, the town is called Uskudar, and that's where the primary hospital was. Uh, I can't wait to, to talk to, to school kids. I haven't been able to talk to school kids because of COVID, but uh, I'm looking forward to the time that I'll get to talk to school kids and try to gross them out with all the things that were going on at the hospital in Scutari before Florence Nightingale got there. And uh, oh, why don't you gross out our audience with one story? Well, um, the uh, the toilets in the hospital were all backed up, uh, and so they got these big tubs and put the big tubs in the middle of the room, and that's what all the soldiers used right there. And the, the orderlies didn't want to empty them because they smelled bad, and, and eventually they would empty them because Florence would go around and stand there glowering at them until they emptied the tubs of, of all the, you know, what they'd been used for. When they finally flushed out the uh, the sewer system to get the the sewer system working again. They found dead horses rotting in the in the sewage lines and things. And basically, the entire hospital was sitting on top of a gigantic cesspit. And and so you know, it's, it's very hard to have people get well under those conditions. <laughs> Oh, definitely. Also, did somebody flush a horse down the toilet? Um, no, I, I don't know how it got there, but there was there was a dead horse in the in in the sewage line. Somehow it had gotten there. I'm not sure how it did. And uh, one second, I need to let my dogs in, but then okay. We'll continue. You know, Florence Nightingale. Um, she's known as the Lady with the Lamp because at night she would get out her lamp and. She would tour the, the hospital award, which she wasn't supposed to do because it, it was considered uh, inappropriate for ladies to be on the hospital wards after dark. But she went anyway, and she spent the whole night sitting with the, the soldiers, uh, talking to them, or if they were dying, she would sit with them. And this was what she became known for, and, and she's known as the, the lady with the lamp. And in popular culture, that's where her story ends right there in Crimea, like she died there herself or something. But but that's not the case. She she lived another 54 years after Crimea. She lived more than half her life. In that second half of her life, the one that people don't know about, she was a pioneer in statistics. She, she went back to, to England and she wanted to improve the sanitation of the, the hospitals. Uh, you know, she wanted to make her case to the public that, hey, this is something we need to do. Our, our soldiers are dying over there and they don't have to. Like I said, she was a she was a very passionate statistician. But at the time, statistics were pretty much only found in these things called blue books, which were these big blue colored tomes that basically collected dust in government storerooms. And that was it. She uh, wanted to communicate with numbers what the British Army was experiencing and what could be gained by by making improvements. And so she took her statistics to the general public. And the way she did that was she used diagrams, uh, some of which uh, she invented herself. And so uh, today, you know, we've just come through a pandemic still going on. But, you know, in the in the in the early days of the pandemic, they talked about flattening the curve and, and what are the numbers like and are they going up or are they going down? And, you know, any use of that, not just in medicine, but anywhere, any use of diagrams or graphs or anything 
um, you, you pretty much have Florence Nightingale to thank for that. And, and people don't know that. People imagine her, you know, she's still marching around Scutari with her lamp. But no, she she did much more after that. That's uh, fascinating. And uh, you know what I'm noticing is a recurring theme um, amongst all of these is a certain um, degree of stubbornness. Yes. <laughs> well, I also think it's kind of sometimes necessary to make advancements, um, you know, to have a certain degree of stubbornness because you have to mm -hmm. think, um, you know, what we have isn't enough. Uh, we have to add to it. And I'm also noticing that um, access to information, um, especially sometimes through technology, like, you know, books getting uh, cheaper, like you said, the blue books that, um, you know, were... That that we're gathering uh, uh, dust, but like, you know, never, nevertheless, we're probably a lot more accessible than, you know, records back uh, thousands of years earlier. And then even right. to the modern day with um, like, you know, Mandelbrot and uh, Blackwell and uh, public education, mm -hmm. um, it, it seems like access to information is really what creates mathematics. Right. Well, it certainly helps. You have to have some place to start. And then you you build upon that. That's another thing I wanted to to point out is that is that math is collaborative. Math is cumulative. Um, you know, Florence Nightingale did not do all this by herself. She had uh, people she looked up to. There was a, a Belgian uh, mathematician named Adolf Ketelet that that she idolized. She got help from a statistician in, in England who named William Farr, who had made one of the the initial breakthroughs in in he was the one that basically statistically discovered that cholera is connected to water. Uh, now, he was wrong about what that connection was, but, but the fact that he had made that connection to water enabled another person, John Snow, to figure out, well, maybe it's something in the water. And, and so that kind of communication and collaboration is essential for math, and it still is today. Oh yeah, definitely. And then you, you I mean, you even have, um, you even have uh, other influences, right? Like the people who went around um, collecting uh, the statistics of, in the case of uh, Florence uh, Nightingale, you know, just the blue books and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, but not only that, uh, the, the the social clubs set up obviously in uh, France. So yeah, right. just, uh, and it's much like, I mean, you didn't you didn't talk about um, the guy who made the steam engine, whose uh, name escapes me. But you know, um, even him, he, he needed um, you James know people Watt? to design. Yeah, he uh, he needed. Uh, thank you. He needed um, people to, you know, solder the metal mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, uh, help construct the steam engine. So, um, and now that's used as um, a part of uh, this, um, like the, 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 the math and science that came out of that um, are used a lot in uh, modern thermodynamics, obviously. Right. So yeah, right. I just wanted to agree with you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm um, cool. So now we have um, Ada Lovelace. Who's, uh, who's Ada Lovelace? Uh, Ada Lovelace was a celebrity child of a celebrity. She was the daughter, the, the only legitimate child of Lord Byron. Lord Byron was a, a, a poet and was known as much for his bad behavior as he was for his poetry. Lord Byron and, and Ada never actually, she never uh, met her father because when she was only a month old, their parents split up. They, they never divorced because I would have been too scandalous. And there was already enough scandal going around. Lord Byron had been caught up in a, in a scandal involving his uh, half-sister. Uh, and that kind of opened the floodgates because other of, of Lord Byron's uh, former lovers came out with stories of, of who he was, and, and including the woman who had, had given him the, the, uh, the label mad, bad, and dangerous to know. And plus, Lord Byron was also in debt, 
So he, he basically got run out of the country when, when Ada was only a month or two old. He, he went off to Europe and uh, eventually died in the Greek War of Independence from the Ottoman Empire. He didn't die in battle. He died in he died of disease. So here we go back to back to more more people in war die of disease than of, of battle wounds. So Ada never met him. But she idolized him, and she uh, had some of his wildness about her. And and her mother, Lady Byron, was was very much afraid that that Ada would go off and do all these crazy things, and and kind of like the way uh, children of celebrities are today. You know, you have Miley Cyrus and Billy Ray Cyrus, or or you have. You know, Willow and Jaden Smith, who are the, the children of, of Will Smith and, and Jada Pinkett Smith. You have the, the child celebrities of, of celebrities. And so Lady Byron gave Ada a very, very rigorous education. And one of the things that calmed uh, Ada's wildness was the, the mental rigor of, of studying mathematics. And Lady Byron was a mathematician also. And so, you know, she had some of that about her. And again, social connections come into play here. Uh, at the time, the, the intellectuals of London all wanted to go to the Saturday night parties that were hosted by Charles Babbage. Charles Babbage was, uh, he was the Lucasian chair of mathematics at Cambridge. That's the position that, that used to be held by uh, Isaac Newton. More recently, it was held by uh, Stephen Hawking. Uh, at the time, it was held by Charles Babbage. But Babbage was more known for his his great parties. And today, you know, Babbage's parties have even shown up on like Doctor Who. <laughs> uh, oh, really? Yes, they did. Um, I'll have to watch that episode. I'm working my way through. But um, it's it's one of it's one of Jody Whittaker's. But but yeah, it's um, but yeah. So yeah, you talk. You uh, brought up Babbage, um, and we've covered um, his uh, un built um analytical engine right on uh, the show before okay um and i know you're gonna uh talk about that so i'll let you just jump in right um yes babbage had an idea at the time a computer was a person who sat at a desk and did computation a a french aristocrat had come up with a way of, of organizing large numbers of people uh, using something called the method of finite differences. So you could have uh, people without a lot of mathematical skill, you, you break a problem down into very simple steps, and then the people with not much mathematical learning can do them. Like if all they know how to do is add and subtract, you know, you break the problem down. So all they need to do is adding and subtracting. And so Babbage came up with the idea, well, what if we get a machine to do this and it can be steam powered and he went to the british government and, and sold them on this idea of, of first it was called the difference engine and then he came up with a new machine called the analytical engine it was going to be this gigantic you know size of a locomotive steam powered calculating machine uh, which never got built he uh was invited to italy to give a presentation on it, uh, and they treated him like royalty. He loved it. One of the engineers there, uh, a man named Luigi Menabrea, who eventually became prime minister of Italy, uh, wrote out a description of Babbage's machine and, and what it could do. But you know, it wasn't in English; it was in French. It got to England, and and a publisher in England wanted this wanted this uh, write up, wanted this article to be translated in English into English. At the time, 
Babbage was sulking because he'd gotten into an argument with the prime minister over funding. Basically, he spent the whole meeting yelling at the prime minister. And and if you've ever done grant applications for research, that yelling at the person who's (laughs) going to give you the money is is not a good way to get your money. It was actually uh, Charles Wheatstone who who said, well, you know, Ada Lovelace is a friend of Babbage's and and she understands his work and she has a, a good mathematical mind. So let's have her translate it. And so that was how it went. Ada Lovelace got the job. Uh, she Not only did she translate the article, but uh, she added her own set of notes that were actually longer than the original article. And the, the notes, everybody it focuses on what is called the first computer program. It's not really a computer program because there were no computer languages at the time. It's, it's basically an outline for what a computer program would look like. It basically describes the algorithm of how this machine would take a problem of, of computing Bernoulli numbers. And I'm not going to get into what those are right now, but it basically takes the problem of calculating Bernoulli numbers and breaks it down into a series of steps that the analytical engine would be able to perform. And, and that is that is what she's known for. The other thing that, that I think is more important is she pointed out what computers could and couldn't do. She, she wrote, you know, people call the analytical engine a thinking machine, but it doesn't think at all. It only does what we tell it to do. It doesn't come up with any of this by itself. A uh, hundred years later, Alan Turing called this Lady Lovelace's objection. And, and today, a lot of people think that, that Lady Lovelace's objection is, is actually a more important hurdle for artificial intelligence to get over than the, the so-called Turing test. So, yeah, and so Turing came up with the name for the hurdle that's even higher than the Turing test. This is, uh, is this thing that Ada Lovelace has, has pointed out and, and, in my opinion, still hasn't been overcome. I mean, you know, IBM can put the, the Watson computer on Jeopardy and it can beat the biggest Jeopardy champions ever, but that's only because someone told it to do that. You know, Watson didn't think for itself, hey, I think I'll go on Jeopardy and I'll win the money. And, you know, it didn't think that. It, it, did, what, it did what it was told to do and that's it. Right. And also like, um, where does uh, artificial intelligence end is another question, like, um, not necessarily end, but like, you know, like, are we going to like, what if we made like, you know, a a machine with an addictive personality, what are the ethics of that? How about like an angry machine or a jerk, you know, Mm -hmm. like, um, and not, not only that, there's, there's so many aspects of thought itself, which are, which are sort of specific to the way that human beings, like, you know, like as evolved, like, you know, from, um, from, uh, apes kind of thing, well, as an another form of ape kind of thing like you know have like very specific i can't think of uh, many well okay one example is like you know you see children when they uh, first start learning um and they like you know have to like look at their um they like look at their hands to learn that they open and close what their hands look like right. um things like that and th- that ultimately contributes to probably a, a, a who know to a, to some extent and probably a great extent um the the ways in which uh we um derive inspiration and things like that mm-hmm. so yeah i just wanted to say that. and also there's the issue of like you know the first machine to pass the turing test might not always pass it right mm-hmm. because we might learn like you know certain patterns but um all this to say um yeah i do think that's a great point to bring up mm-hmm. 
And uh, Ada Lovelace, um, uh, just um, it, she was uh, 1800s, um, yes. right? And um, I believe we said that Florence Nightingale was 1800s, but if we yes. hadn't, uh, uh, yeah. And um, they, they actually, Lawrence. they actually oh, knew each other in passing. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, they did. Not really, really well, but um, because uh, well, because Ada, uh, Ada Lovelace died uh, very young. She was in her 30s, and she had cancer. And um, Florence Nightingale was still in her twenties at the time, um, so they they didn't know each other well, but they you know they went through the same social circles. Interesting. Yeah, you never know who knows each other in his in mathematical history sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then you got um, Edward Lorenz in the Chaotic Butterflies. Um, right. You talk about Edward Lorenz. Edward Lorenz um, was an MIT professor. He. Uh, was a mathematician at first, and then he uh, then World War II happened. Uh, Lorenz uh, learned meteorology in order to be a weather forecaster in World War II. Was sent out to the Pacific uh, to work for Twenty First Bomber Command under under Curtis LeMay. And the the big thing at that time was uh, they had the new the new B twenty nine bomber, which could go higher up than any other military plane ever had before, and so high up that uh, they they ran into the jet stream. <laughs> and the first you know one of the first planes to hit the jet stream uh, was kind of like you know. They suddenly found themselves over the Aleutian Islands instead of Japan. Uh, so they oh, wow. brought this information back, and, and Lorenz was part of the team that that started to figure out the meteorology of, of how this worked and, and how they could use it to to make more effective um, airstrikes during the war. And Curtis LeMay came up with some pretty horrendous uh, ideas, and I'm not going to get into that. But uh, Lorenz uh, learned weather forecasting because of World War II, uh, came back and changed his field to, to meteorology. And by the 1950s, late 1950s, he was very much in the camp of, of doing uh, numerical weather forecasting. There was this idea that if you just had the right equations, you could calculate uh you could predict the weather in advance, and in fact, there was a there was a, a Walt Disney little fifteen minute documentary that Walt Disney put together at, at some point in the late nineteen fifties that uh, envisioned this World Weather Bureau with satellites in in orbit, and the World Weather Bureau would be able to collect so much information and compute it using the new electronic computers that that we could forecast. The weather, you know, weeks and months in advance, and so far in advance that we could do things to change the weather and control the weather. This was kind of a, a dream people had for several decades previously, and, and Lorenz was one of the people that was exploring this idea. By 1960, Lorenz had something that most other college professors or researchers of any kind didn't have yet, and that is he had his own computer. MIT had had bought him. Uh, a desk computer. And when I say a desk computer, it's not what you think today that it goes on top of your desk. A desk computer was the size of a desk, uh, <laughs> is this big gigantic thing. Um, Lorenz described it as sounding like a, a, a small airplane flying overhead. 
the desk computer had its own office. They, they put it in Lorenz's office, but he didn't want to be in there with it because it was so noisy. So he moved down the hall and, and took an extra desk in, in the room where his assistants were. And the desk computer got its own room and it did calculations for him. And interestingly, here's another, here's another example of who knows who. His very first programming assistant was a, a young woman who had just graduated college in mathematics and had moved to Boston uh, because her husband was going to Harvard Law School. Uh, her name was Margaret Hamilton. Uh, working for Lorenz taught her uh, you know, a love of computer programming. And so uh, you know, she was originally thinking of, of getting a higher degree in mathematics, but she ended up going into computer programming instead and uh, ended up being the lead software engineer for NASA's Apollo Moon program and there's a famous picture of her in her you know very 1960s 1970 looking outfit standing next to a, a stack of binders that's as tall as she is and that's the that's the source code for the Apollo uh, lunar module or the Apollo guidance computer that's Margaret Hamilton she got her start doing weather prediction weather forecasting software for Ed Lorenz but I digress. So one day Lorenz is getting ready for a conference where he's going to present some of his ideas. And he's looking at a, a computer run of some, some weather forecasting uh, predictions, you know, a weather simulation. And he decides he wants to rerun the calculation uh, from somewhere in the middle so he can recheck his figures. So he looks at at the line of numbers, you know, it's like, oh, okay, I'll pick this point right here. And he types in the numbers and he tells the computer, start at this point. And then he goes and he gets a cup of coffee. An hour later, he comes back and the computer is printing out a completely different pattern of results from the one it did before. And uh, it being the early 1960s, the first assumption is that there's something wrong with the computer. But he looked into it more and and he realized very quickly that it's not a computer problem. Uh, what had happened was the computer's memory kept the numbers to six decimal places, but it had only printed them out to three. So when he went back and typed in the results from halfway through and said, here, start here. He wasn't giving the computer exactly the right numbers. One example is, uh, you know, the computer had known that a number was 0.506127, but it only printed 0.506. And so that's what he typed in, 0.506. And a common assumption at the time um, would have been that, you know, like the, the that it's uh, that it's numerical work, so you know it's uh, very close. But you know because uh, it's uh, the it was a differential equation, right? The differences will smooth out was the was the assumption, but they don't. They don't smooth out. They they magnify and they get bigger, and uh, that little difference was was enough to throw the whole calculation off. And uh, what Lorenz realized is what that means is that. We will never have weather instruments that are precise enough to predict the weather beyond about two weeks. So all this stuff about predicting the weather months and months in advance is, is never going to happen because we will never have instruments that are precise enough because a, a slight difference, smaller than what the instrument can measure, 
you know, say your say your thermometer goes to to 0.001 of a degree, there's an error difference of you know 0.0001. That's enough to throw the whole thing off. The, the, the difference will magnify and, and propagate through the system. And so eventually, about two weeks later, you will have something completely different from, from what you had predicted. Uh, yeah, and I, and I understand that um, when he gave his talk, there was a lot of excitement about, well, this means that we can control the weather by using uh, peaceful explosions and this and that by for manipulating the atmosphere. But they ignore um, uh, the second part of the uh, paper, uh, right, that kind of talks about that you can't um, affect long-term statistical behavior. Right. You can't affect, you can't affect the long-term behavior because your instruments aren't precise enough. And, and yeah, you can use bombs to to push the weather off, but how precise is your bomb going to be? Oh, yeah, exactly. Your, your, your bomb would have to be precise enough to do, you know, things one way or another. It also strikes me that if you had, um, uh, let's say, um, some kind of um, thing out in space, right, that um, it, has, it, it has the Schrodinger's box type thing um, that sends out um, one part that, that that either, like, you know, um, that counts the amount of radioactive decay and has a 50% of uh, sending out, um, like, an atom. It strikes me that if if we follow the multiple world interpretation of physics, that, like, you know, just a tiny little difference, that one atom between these two universes, ignoring even quantum fluctuation that you would see different weather patterns no matter how small um, the difference was between the two, which right. is why he talks about, obviously, the butterfly wings. Butter, butterfly wings, yes. It was originally a seagull. It was originally a sea... Yes, the idea of a seagull flapping its wings in one part of the world can eventually call, change the weather in another part of the world. Ten years later, in 1972, he was, he was going to give a presentation on this and... And it was actually the person who was putting the program together for the conference who came up with the butterfly instead of the seagull. But uh, what we call it today is is the butterfly effect. The idea that yes, the butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil can can eventually cause a, a tornado in Texas. And Lorenz himself was was kind of skeptical about this and and pointed out that you know if one butterfly flapping its wings can cause a tornado, then another butterfly flapping its wings can can stop a tornado. And and what about all the other butterflies and the seagulls and the the mosquitoes and you know everything else? So so he he was not such a big fan of the butterfly effect. He was he was a bit too uh, too down to earth for that, but. But it did catch on. I like how his I like how his range of down to earth is a butterfly. The butterfly is far too small. Seagull, that's fine. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, but the butterfly effect has been very uh, popular, and and there's uh, I guess I guess um, I never saw the original Jurassic Park, but there's a scene in the original Jurassic Park where Jeff Goldblum is explaining the butterfly effect, and and he does a better job than most. A lot of people don't don't quite get what the butterfly effect means, but. But if, if you want to know, you, I guess you need to watch the original Jurassic Park. Then. Or we could roll that clip. Still not clear on chaos. Oh, oh it, 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 it uh, simply uh, deals with uh, predictability in complex systems. The shorthand is the, the butterfly effect. A butterfly can flap its wings in Peking, and in Central Park you get rain instead of sunshine. Why? <laughs> <laughs>
Robert Black's book series covers seven mathematicians over six books spanning four centuries of mathematics and covers mathematicians from all walks of life. This uh, book is geared towards expanding children's education through bringing mathematicians to life through stories. I'm Sophia, and this has been Breaking Math. Uh, with me, I had on uh, Robert Black. Uh, let me ask you, uh, where can people access uh, these books? Um, my books are available through the Royal Fireworks Press website, rfwp.com. And uh, can also find my, my earlier books there. And uh, I just hope that, that uh, people looking for ways to, to understand math better and to, to see it as, uh, as we've been talking about, a, a human activity, something that regular people do for regular reasons. It's a good opportunity to, uh, if they want to know more about that and, and they want to think about how Everybody else is, you know, they might think, well, I'm a regular person and I've got regular reasons. And wouldn't it be nice if I could do math, too, if if math has always seemed kind of alien or foreign to them, then, then maybe reading how other people came to approach it will, will help them as well. Awesome. So um, there we go. 